So let us turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. We'll be reading from 11 to 28. I went over a little bit last week on 11 to 14, but I want to finish up on the second part of this sermon. And so from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 28, and if you have a pew Bible, you can find that in the seat in front of you, or underneath the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 945. And so when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In the previous weeks, the author of Hebrews would reveal to his readers on how the Levitical ceremony was a shadow of the things to come. And last week, we went over how the first covenant was actually limited in scope and efficacy. How so? There were two main points, if I may remind you. Number one, while it provided access to the most holy place, 
it was provisional. The Levitical ceremony, Levitical ceremony was provisional for the high priest because what we saw was even though the high priest may enter once a year during the Day of Atonement, the, the access was still restricted to everyone else. You needed the high priest to go in for the atoning of sins, but even if he were to be successful, it didn't mean you were allowed in. That was one. The second point was the sacrifices needed to be repeated year after year. Every single time they needed to sacrifice again and again, and it was pointing to the fact that it was imperfect. These are, these are very big points that we have to remember as we continue on the rest of chapter 9. And it all came down to this understanding that no matter how good the model or pattern, what it could not do, what these rituals and ceremonies what these cultic traditions could not do was change the heart. The conscience could not be changed. So the outward dress was dealt with, but the inward heart that needed to be changed needed to be changed because only then could you enter into the sacred. You see, Adam and Eve also, this is not just during Levitical times. Adam and Eve, when they were kicked out of the garden, they were dressed. They were dressed outwardly with what? They were dressed outwardly with skins. You can, you can read that in the end of Genesis chapter three the, 3, the second to the last verse. God would dress them in animal skins. God covered their outside as well. And then you would have to take note, even in the beginning in Genesis, that a killing of an animal was necessary to cover Adam and Eve. Because what that essentially pointed to was our longing to be covered inwardly. The outward cover that was shown even from the beginning was this longing to be covered inwardly. And the killing of animals would have correlated then with the shedding or spilling of blood. Now, this is the primary theme that's going to be throughout this latter part of the chapter. It's about blood. This morning, we're going to go over, over what blood is and the correlation it has to Christ's death. And the argument that, will be, that is being put forward by the author is that access to the most holy place meaning access to God, can only be attained through blood. This is not only a theological assessment, or I should say it's not merely theological. I say this because it takes a, this author takes a broader approach behind the meaning of the, the medium of blood. He doesn't simply confine it to the Day of Atonement because he uses the examples of the ashes of a heifer, which we'll get into. The ashes of a heifer had nothing to do with the Day of Atonement. And so this idea of blood being used as a medium for cleansing for the holy, the holy place or the sanctification isn't a new one. In fact, almost every ancient religion 
And I will argue even modern thought, modern religions, even though people don't call it a religion, I believe it is a religion, require blood in their rituals. Maybe lightly, when you were a kid, you did a blood pact with your friend. Because blood is a medium to something, to symbolize something heavier. Oaths made in blood made the oath heavier. There are other rituals in the ancient world, and still today, again, that use blood. I'm going to take a slight bit of a tangent to expound on this point. In October of 2011, the BBC reported in an article titled African Children Trafficked to UK for Blood Rituals, stated this. I'm quoting from the article. Figures compiled by ECPAT combined with those of the Metropolitan Police and CEOP, the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Center, show that at least 400 African children have been abducted and trafficked to the UK and rescued by British authorities. Now this is an astounding figure that they just started to come upon in 2011. Christine Beto, she's the director of the anti-trafficking charity ECPAT, which was mentioned before, would say, quote, our experience tells us that traffickers can be anybody. They can be people with power, people with money, or people involved in witchcraft. And so witchcraft in 2011 in the UK was on the rise. And so there are all sorts of people that are taking children from Africa and all, the, all other places of the world and using them for their rituals. In current day, right now, there are now reports estimating that over 2 million children are being trafficked around the world. When I think about things like this, and I see this grave, grave crime, and how you can't help but to think that judgment is imminent, especially when you think about the shedding of innocent blood. There has to be some sort of repercussions to people with this kind of hubris, this pride, this immense evil that they're holding. And this is one commentator said, this may be the most gangster, I'm quoting, this may be the most gangster thing that Jesus ever said was from Matthew 18.6, and it's regarding children. Matthew 18.6, Jesus says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, Jesus is saying, and this person feels like this is the most gangster thing Jesus ever said. If you cause this person, this little one that's in Jesus, to sin, what's coming to you is worse than you getting a millstone fastened or chained around your neck and you being thrown into the depth of the sea. That's better than what's about to come 
for you messing with God's children. Going back to the topic of blood, it seems that it should be said then, the shedding of blood doesn't all please God. That's not the point of the passage. Let's say, au contraire, mon frere, when you read the Bible, most of all the blood that is actually shed is condemned by God. But people from the ancient world to the modern world have picked up on this idea that there is heaviness in blood, which is true. It's knowledge. It's truth. But they would use this knowledge that there is heaviness in blood and use it to go against God. You see, the shedding of innocent blood, the taking of an innocent life, especially our babies and our young ones, is something that God truly and absolutely abhors and detests. Because blood is pointing to what? Look throughout history, look in the Bible. Blood points to life-giving power. And so why did people in the ancient day then sacrifice and shed other people's blood? Well, the answer is for themselves. From Abel to the Pharisees, there was a shedding of blood that is accounted for in the Bible. And they will be held accountable. I want to prove that point to you by looking at the word. What was the purpose of shedding other people's blood? Why would I take another innocent person's life? John 11 talks about this. And then it says in John 11, verse 45, there were a lot of people who saw what happened and they believed Jesus Christ. And so some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so from verse 47, it says, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. This is a big deal to the Pharisees and the chief priests. They're going to believe in this guy, Jesus, because he's doing all these signs. What are we going to do? And they continue on, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. There was a cost. If people follow Jesus, you will lose your place of power. You will lose your comfort, your wealth, your riches. Everything that you believe you've established, you will lose. So like, what are we going to do about this guy, Jesus? And from verse 49 in John chapter 11 says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And that part there might be a little confusing. What does that mean? What does that mean that one man should die for the, for the people? Otherwise, the nation might perish. Did they really mean the same thing that Jesus meant when he said, I need to die for the people? Did he also mean that? And I think the answer is no. 
think about it. Why did Caiaphas want Jesus to die? The context is they're going to take everything we have if we let people continue to follow Jesus. And Caiaphas would say, that's why he needs to die. He needs to die so that they don't take everything away from us. To further prove that point, I want to turn to Luke chapter 11. This is what Jesus says. He pronounces a lot of woes. At the end of this passage, he also pronounces a woe to lawyers. There's a bunch of stuff, right? But this is one of the woes. Woe to you, he says in Luke chapter 11, verse 47, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. You need to get this in, in correlation with the blood that is being shed, innocent blood that is being shed, okay? For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send the prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that, from verse 50, here it is, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. He's talking to the Pharisees and teachers. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. What he was pointing to was that you think you believe in God. You claim to believe in God. You build these monuments and you, your tombs. You build these artifacts. You build these mausoleums. And you say, here is a great man who died. And you stand upon their graves. You gain power. And whenever someone else will come in that person's footsteps that was killed by your fathers, you also kill him so that you continue to get that power because you don't want to let go. So you stand upon the graves of the martyrs because you want power. Woe to you, that reckoning is you're going to get the blame for every single one of them. That's a very, very powerful woe. And that's what people do. When we think that it's just, you know, that's a shedding of blood here, not a big thing. Innocent blood there, not a big thing. What can we do? We start to think like that. And I'm telling you, God doesn't think like that. He remembers from the blood of Abel all the way down to now. Whose blood has been spilt? Their blood is crying out to him for justice, and he's going to give them justice. And yet here you are saying, to the people that are using this to stand on their graves, to stand on their tombs, to get power for themselves, it's short-lived. You will reap the consequences. It will be required of this generation. Those are some very powerful words by Jesus. Spilling of any kind of blood isn't really the point, though. Spilling of blood is significant. In fact, you might be, though, if you spill the wrong kind of blood or you spill blood that is not allowed, you will be on the receiving end of God's vengeance. So you need to get that right, not wrong. But through the medium of a specific kind of blood, in the manner that God has ordained, 
is going to grant access to God. And I think this is really the point. Everybody, you think it's just voodoo witch doctors, but everybody. Blood is heavy. You recognize this truth, but what you're doing, and I'm hoping you get this correlation, what we do is without the understanding of God and Jesus Christ, what we are doing is we're taking other people's blood, standing on them so that we could prop ourselves up, and God is going to hold you to account. Whether you realize it or not, you might be a simple thing. To the Pharisees, it's a simple thing. Jesus just needs to die so that we retain our power. It's just a simple thing, but it's not true. God remembers how you even got there in the first place through all the generations of blood that were spilled because he sent people to tell you the truth and you reject the truth so that you can attain for yourself worldly riches, worldly powers at the expense of other people. But God has ordained a specific way one way as we went over last, year, last week that will grant access to God a specific medium of blood that will let you go into the Holy of Holies. Now, I, what I did by sharing that now is cover the middle portion of this passage. So if we go take that and bring it back to verses 11 and 12, it shows us that when Christ finally appeared, keeping all this in mind, that's when we see the good things have come. Meaning that what, were, what was already foreshadowed, which were the good things to come, finally have arrived with the arrival of Jesus. He is the greater and more perfect tent. The pattern that Moses saw on Sinai was an outline of Jesus. And this perfect tent is not made with hands. That's, that language is an emphatic uh, tone. It denotes emphasis and for clarity, just in case you didn't get it, he clarifies it by writing, not of this creation, in verse 11, right? 12. Moses saw an outline of the perfect, but that perfect tent was not made with human hands, meaning it is not of this creation. And so Jesus, though, who is the more perfect tent, didn't enter the most holy place, and he's going to go on, and this is the summary of this whole passage is from 11 and 12. He didn't enter this, this most holy place through the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And through his own blood, he entered once and for all. No more continual sacrifices because he is the fulfillment. No more year after year because Christ's entry to the most holy place, meaning God's holy sanctuary, which means heaven, is definitive. Once and for all. And once and for all, what did he secure us? Eternal redemption. Salvation. These two verses cover this whole passage. What did he secure for us once and for all? Salvation. Once and for all, okay? From verses 13 and 14. And again, by mentioning the blood of the goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. I mentioned that because ashes would be mixed, so you would obviously sacrifice a burnt sacrifice of a heifer, and then you would mix that with water. And if any Israel would happen to defile themselves by touching a corpse, you would sprinkle it on them to get them cleansed. So what he is doing now is taking those sacrifices from the Day of Atonement, but also other sacrifices 
of cleansing, like other cleansing rituals. He's putting all the sacrifices of the Old Testament together to show that these merely, all of them, provided an external or symbolic removal of sin and defilement. That means Jesus' sacrifice achieved what the first covenant or the Old Testament ceremonies could not fully do. Namely, his sacrifice would purify all the way to the inside, the conscience. That's right there in verse 13 and 14. The outward covering long for the inward. Jesus Christ is that completion of the outward to the inward is cleansed. And Jesus Christ was able to do this cleansing and removal of every and any impediment that will keep us then from what? What happens if your inside is clean? We've been going after that. If your inside is clean and your outside is clean, you can go into the most holy place. That's what Jesus Christ's sacrifice did. And this is important because no matter how many ceremonies and sacrifices you made, let's be honest with yourself. Even if you really thought you wanted to go into the presence of God, would you dare? One wrong thought, one impure thought in front of the Holy of Holies will get you obliterated. Where would you end up if you think you could go into the presence of God with the heart that you have and that alone? And that's why the conscience is significant because this is what confronts the living God. When you go up to the living God and come up to His presence, it's your conscience that also faces God. And His sacrifice would bring in the new covenant because it cleansed our consciences what any other and every other ritual and sacrifice could not. That's what it is. That's what this world is going after. They want to be cleansed. They think they can be cleansed. They do these impure acts. They think that by standing on other people's blood that they can go in. But that's false. You will not. In fact, you will get God more angry. But Jesus Christ and His blood, His death, His sacrifice gave us access to God. Verse 15, In His death He gives those that transgress God then His perfect obedience. God promises blessing upon those that obey His mandates and curses on those that transgress in the Torah. Right? If you follow My commands, you will be blessed. And if you don't follow them, you will be cursed. You see that all throughout the five books of the Pentateuch, the rest of the Torah, right, the Old Testament. But what Jesus Christ does, he takes those transgressions, he puts it on himself, and then he takes his perfect, obedient life, and he gives it to those that receive him as Savior. These are the people that the Bible says, those that are called. In a sense, what he did then, I'm going to do a little jump, he consummated the old order so that he could usher in the new. He completes the old covenant and inaugurates the new covenant. And this is so important for us to get because this is exactly what Hebrews is saying. Verse 16 to 17, For this to take place, and here it is, the spilling of blood, meaning death, was necessary. So 
the focus on verse 15 wasn't merely the blessings of the old covenant. He's making sure that we don't get it. We get it, rather, that we're not just in this just to get the blessings. But what we get is Jesus' mediatorship of a new covenant. And for that new covenant to be secured, it must be secured in death. The will, the death, it must be secured in blood. All throughout the Old Testament, covenants were secured in blood. And so to fill that old covenant, it was secured with Jesus' blood. He died, and he secured that covenant with his blood. It's completed, it's consummated, and he ushers in a new covenant. There is no more Old Covenant. That's what I hope people get. There's no more Old Testament. It has been consummated by Jesus Christ. And so here, from verses 18 to 22, the importance of blood is mentioned again and again. And I want us to get this because when we take the bread, when we take the cup, when we say this is Jesus Christ's blood, it means more than just one thing. It means all these things that we have mentioned. And I want to just show what just chapter 9 mentions about Jesus Christ's blood. Verse 7, Jesus Christ's blood provided access. Access to the holy place. Verse 14, Jesus Christ's blood purifies the conscience. The inside is purified. Verse 18, Jesus Christ's blood inaugurates, inaugurates the new covenant. Verse 19, Jesus Christ's blood consecrates and makes us holy. Verse 21, Jesus Christ's blood cleanses the temple's vessels. That one's a big one. That's a confusing one, but I want to go over that as well. And verse 22, Jesus Christ's blood purifies almost everything. Almost everything is, is a big thing. This blood purifies almost everything. So number one, verse seven, blood provided access. 14, blood purifies the conscience. Verse 18, blood inaugurates. Verse 19, blood consecrates. Verse 21, blood cleans the temple vessels. Verse 22, blood purifies almost everything. And so we see that there are mentions of blood in this chapter because of what God means to do with this medium of blood. It is not like the world. The world has some sort of understanding, but it falls way short to what God had intended. And so verse 23, it says, now this final paragraph is started. The writer concludes what started the passage out. So from verse 23 to 28 is about 11 and 12, and it's concluding it. It says, where the triumphal announcement from verse 12 of the good thing, or verse 11, where the good things have come. And I'm going to be honest with you. Verse 23 is a very difficult verse, and I don't understand it fully. Because what, is, what it really implies, and if you're following me here, I told you this is a very difficult chapter. What it implies is that the opening of the most holy place meant that the sins of the people could possibly defile heaven. That's, that, I don't know. Is that, is that what it's saying? It's, 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 that's what, definitely what it's somewhat alluding to. Because why in the world would heaven need to be purified? But that's exactly what it's saying. There is a purification of the vessels in the actual heaven, the heavenly realms, the most holy place. 
And here's where I can think of at least two possible things this is referring to, but I think is more. But at least two that you know it definitely is referring to. And I think he's referring to the temple or tabernacle now that is our bodies. Our bodies are a temple to the most holy God, and that's what needs the sprinkling of the blood. And number two, the sprinkling of the blood is also a measure to show us that even as people, even us people, as we enter the heavenly place, as we enter heaven, we cannot, we cannot defile the heavenly sanctuary because it's already been sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb. So we cannot defile those things because it's already been sprinkled by the blood of the lambs. Now, there are more things that the sprinkling of heavenly things implicates, but I'll just leave it there for now. Because what the point is in verse 23 is Christ's sacrifice was full, was complete, was sufficient that the heavenly sanctuary, the most holy place, cannot be defiled with our entrance. He cleanses us and everything around us all the way to the heavenly place. That's where we're going. That's the point. We are going to heaven. That's who has been called. And so as Jesus Christ leads us to heaven, everything has been cleansed, purified by the blood of the Lamb. There's nothing that has not been cleansed, so there is no worry for us then. There's no worry because Jesus Christ has done it. And so here is the rest of the summary from verses 24 to 26. Number one, there's two parts. Number one, Christ did not enter into a representation or um, a pattern or a facimile of the most holy place, right? He entered into the actual heavenly sanctuary itself. This is the true and genuine dwelling place of God. When Jesus entered the most holy place, he actually entered the place where God resides. And number two, he does not have to do this sacrifice year after year or a continuous manner because it was his blood, that means once and for all, and this is in contrast to the continual sacrifices the priests had to make. Two major points that we have to get. Because when you get these two points, you could get to the final two verses of this chapter, verses 27 to 28. This once and for all, this once and for all act now gives us another dimension. That other dimension is an eschatological dimension. It puts us in an eschatological perspective when the high priest went into the most holy place in the tabernacle, what happened? So in the Old Testament, once a year during Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would put on his garb, remember the onyx stones and the breastplate on his shoulders with the names of the people, he really wanted to go in. When the high priest would enter, all the people would surround the tent and they would eagerly what? They would eagerly wait. They would look to see if God would receive their sacrifices. So they would wait. They don't know what's going on inside because they couldn't go inside. But if the priest had completed his duty, meaning his office, and he came out, you can imagine the awe, the relief, the joy, the thankfulness, the worshipful hearts that everyone had, and all those feelings that people must have felt when they saw the high priest come out. 
all the while the glory that the high priest would have received. That completion, that's what he's mentioning here in the end verses, that completion is juxtaposed, it's put next to the second coming. This is what I mean by eschatological. It's juxtaposed with the second coming, the parousia of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will come a second time. And just like the people waiting outside for the high priest to come out, we have people waiting for Jesus to come back. These are the people that God has called. Jesus will come again, and when he does come again, we will finally come or go from a place of justification as we have been living in sanctification, meaning justification is a legal status that has been changed from guilty to innocent. Sanctification is where we get our lives to become more and more holy by the power of the Spirit. But when He comes again, that justification and sanctification finally gets to the final part, glorification. We get to see God face to face. We get to move forward finally to be with God, and that journey is complete. That's the second coming. That's what people have been waiting for. This is what the author is pointing to. This is the new covenant. The old covenant has been ratified. The new covenant is there. You are justified. You are being sanctified. And when he comes again, you will be glorified. That is a promise that is given to us in the blood of Jesus Christ. And because his blood was shed and his sacrifice was accepted by God, this is assured to those that believe in Jesus. So when we live life now, we live life always in two dimensions. One is we live this life understanding that we must battle sin absolutely. We must live a holy life absolutely because this pleases God. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has cleansed us and given us his second paraclete, the, another paraclete, the one who is alongside us, para meaning with, cleat meaning called, so he's called to be alongside us so that we can journey in our, on our, our path to holiness to finally the completion, which is glorification. This forward movement to God is complete. What the old priests could not do, what any priest in all of history could not do, Jesus has done, has guaranteed, and will do. And this is the promise that we have to those that put their faith in Jesus Christ. So those are the two dimensions that I want us to remember as we live in this world. Yes, we live today. Today is important. It's important that we worship God today, but we also live in the dimension that Jesus will come again. So we live looking forward to the day that Jesus comes again, just like the people who are waiting outside the tent, looking for and waiting for the high priest to come out, because when he comes out, whew, that's a day. That's a day we've been waiting for. And so this is the eschatological significance of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. It is so important that we get this, that we, as recipients of the new covenant have this given to us, guaranteed to us, signed and sealed to us by the Holy Spirit, but by the blood of the Lamb. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ, this is what, I, this is what every pastor, every Christian wants to 
that longs for you to understand. Pray that you receive this understanding that nothing in this world will satisfy because what can satisfy has been achieved through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has already made that one way. So that's why we place our faith in Him. And as we continue to study the Word of God, God opens up His revelation. You see that it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's like when Jesus Christ gave the parable of the, the steward will bring out all the jewels and display it for the people to see. That's what God's Word is. It shows us the wonderful beauty of God's plan, design, order, word, law, showing us His love for us. What an amazing God we serve. What an amazing Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Let's praise the Lord with all of our lives and lift up to Him our bodies, our souls, as sacrifices to Him. Let's pray. Lord, in a world where it is demanded that you die for me, we see that when you came upon this world, in a humble estate, it's I die for you. And you died for us. And your blood was shed. And you gave us something that we could never deserve or merit on our own. But you gave it to us out of your incredible love for your people. Now help us to continue to live out this truth in gratitude and in obedience in accordance with your will. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on what the Lord has shown us in his word and give him a prayer of gratitude and thanksgiving, of adoration. And again, if there is a place in your life that you are to repent, your conscience has been revived and you know that you have been sinning, then know that God is gracious and he listens to the prayers of his saints. He will forgive those that come to him with a contrite heart. And so approach the throne of glory and grace with that kind of confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ in prayer now. Let us pray.